The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Rice launches a deep three off the mark. The long wait is over. Washington State's Pac-12 champions. Well, there you go. That occurred on Sunday. I love to hear that, and I'll hear it again and again. <laughs> Washington State, Pac-12 champs. Congratulations to the women of Washington State University who made that possible. It was improbable going into this tournament. I mean, they had to knock off Utah, number three, Colorado, and then, of course, UCLA. And the men are playing right now down in Las Vegas, and hopefully they'll be able to repeat what the women have done, what's interesting, they have a shot at it. It's a legitimate shot to do it. So again, it's the women's turn. Again, congratulations for your great win. Welcome to Voices of Experience on Kixie AM 880 and KKNW 1150 AM. My name is Paul Casey. Today we have a really interesting lineup, various topics like we always try to do here. But first up will be a Dr. Holly Geyer. And she is an addiction medicine specialist with the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, we're going to be talking about the opioid epidemic and also solutions. So I think that's a very important part of that interview. And Eric, you have Dr. Frederick, and he is your chiropractor. And uh, it's going to be interesting, your conversation with him today, because I go to a chiropractor too. We've talked about it. So let's find out if it's uh, what you do with your interview and also maybe if other people should consider it out there. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm glad you're having that interview with Dr. Geyer. I think that's a, a wonderful, it's very apropos to what's going on here locally and, and in a lot of major cities and rural areas, actually. So so congratulations on that. As far as chiropractor, um, Dr. Frederick is great. I, I really enjoy going to him. A little different than some of the chiropractors I've been to in terms of the amount of time he spends I think the first uh, the first session was uh, an hour and a half. He really gets into the nitty-gritty as to exactly what's ailing you and then talks about various options for treatment. I've just been really happy, and I thought, you know, there was a time when I did not know what chiropractic care was all about and maybe even, sh shall I say, a bit skeptical. So uh, I said, would you mind coming on and let's have a conversation about what it is, who it's for, what, what is the treatment like, and what is someone going to experience once they're in your office? He said, sure. And he's a, he's a super likable guy. He does a great interview, so I hope people enjoy it and learn something from it. Well, I agree with you, Eric. Before I really started seeing a chiropractor myself, which is well over 20 years ago now, I always heard about bone crunchers, yeah. you know, something like that. It has nothing to do with your bones whatsoever, <laughs> but I'm not going to give any more information out because of my limited knowledge. But we'll uh, learn, hopefully, from uh, Dr. Frederick a little later. Voices in history for today. This was billed as the greatest fight of the century. Was it a costly wartime battle? Or was it something else? All I will tell you now 
It happened in 1971. Timeless Classics for today. This group was originally called the Versatiles, but changed their name to the Fifth Dimension. I'm going to play one of their memorable songs later today. Hard choice to make because they had so many hits. Peculiar Podcast with Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster. A guy comes into a barbershop on several occasions and asks how long he would have to wait to get a haircut. The barber says, well, about two hours. He comes back again about a week later. How long for a haircut? About three hours. The guy keeps doing this. And finally, one of the barbers says, after several visits, what's going on here? Well, Pat Cashman will solve this mystery later. (laughs) See, you're already laughing. because I'm already laughing. Pat Cashman's name. You know there's something here. And there is. It's quite funny. Uh, Voices of Experience. Everyone has a story, and that's what we try to do on this program, bring that to light. We talk with people with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, entertainment, and with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. And um, if you want to talk about anything that you've heard on the show today or any other show, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Leave a message. Uh, comment on anything again or something we haven't talked about, anything that's on your mind. Again, that's 425-653-1166. And uh, if we can get to this later, I want to talk about the importance of good judgment if you are starting your own business. So that's the introduction. Let's get on with the program. Dr. Harley, Holly, excuse me, Dr. Holly Geyer, addiction, addiction medicine specialist with the Mayo Clinic coming up next. of drug-related 911 calls for children under age 20 involve opioids. Every eight minutes, someone in the U.S. dies from an opioid overdose. Not a very upbeat subject to talk about, but I do think it's very necessary because we have a very qualified guest to talk about this subject, Dr. Holly Geyer. She's written a book called Ending the Crisis. She's an addiction medicine specialist with the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. The history of opioid in this country and the world, when did this all begin and get us to the point we are now? You know, there's a long-standing history of opioid um, use in uh, the the world, actually, going back more than 6,000 years, where it was recognized for its pain-relieving activity and its uh, not-so-medicinal purposes, shall we say. (laughs) In America, we've had multiple waves of epidemics going back to the last 200 years, and probably the most devastating one, at least from an accounting standpoint, you know, we're we're dealing with 80-plus thousand lives taken each year because of it, so certainly still in crisis mode. Well, you suggested that uh, we're solving the problem the wrong way. Could you elaborate on that? Absolutely. You know, historically, we've really focused on different mechanisms to curb this epidemic from a regulatory, from a prescribing, from a government standpoint, instead of using the same approach that we historically used for other problems before we encounter them. And that's just mass education to the public to be aware of opioid risks, toxicities, benefits, when to use them appropriately, when not to, how to store them safely, what adjunctive regimens are out there before we ever encounter that drug. If we had that baseline knowledge in every American household, I think we'd be approaching this epidemic very differently. 
The same thing goes for the latter half of the book where we address the management of opioid use disorder or addiction. What role do friends and family play in getting an addict or someone struggling with addiction to the treatment they need? We empower people through this book to be really authoritative sources on their own before they ever run into these problems. So you aren't anti-opioid at all. You're just suggesting that it be carefully monitored. Oh my goodness. I, I believe one of the biggest drivers of this epidemic is actually our misunderstanding of the drugs, not the drugs themselves. When we use opioids in the right patient for the right purpose, the right length of time at the right dose, they're probably one of medicine's greatest marvels. And when used outside of those confines, they're, they're leading to statistics. So these drugs serve an important purpose in our world, and um, I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon. But of course, when they're used in the improper channels or from the wrong venues, we're going to end up with the death rates that we see. I'm an expert in opioid because I watched the movie Dope Sick. I'm just being facetious there. It's a documentary series, and um, I was fascinated by yeah. it, but horrified as well. And my editorial comment on that is the Sackler family, they were no better than pushers down on major downtown streets during that period of time. I guess my question to you is, did you see the documentary series and what did you think about it? I am very familiar with this series as well as uh, Beth Macy, who I've had the privilege to um, talk with on this issue myself. You know, the reality is that it wasn't just this pharmaceutical company who was engaged in um, uh, uh, falsifying documents, inappropriate practices, anti-kickback campaigns, all of the things for which they were ultimately prosecuted for by the federal government. It was many medical uh, pharmaceutical companies that really had the same approach. And as guilty as um, you know they may have been in this process, I think we could equally point the finger back at the medical community for buying into it. I don't think we use the level of evidence that we apply to many other medical disorders to make decisions on whether or not pharmaceutically provided opioids led to addiction. And um, I think we've seen the fallout from that. Is it still a major problem in this country as it was, let's say, five years ago, or are we getting ahead of it in some capacity? It's worse. If you can remember back around that 2015 to 2018 timeframe, uh, America really took on the war on drugs in a different approach, offering treatment approaches, better screening for patients, and all of these regulatory requirements that came down at a state and federal level. There was a big push to start making a curb in this epidemic. And despite all of those efforts, in 2020, we saw a 30% increase in opioid-related overdose deaths across our nation. In 2021, it was a 15% increase. Who knows what this last year did? So these trends are anything but convincing that um, we're heading in the right direction. Hmm. So again, reviewing what can we do to step up? Because it sounds like an emergency almost. Do we need to just stop and, and start over again? I, I guess I kind of feel that I was hoping that it would be better than it was when I watched that horrific, uh, you know, dope sick, all the lives that it destroyed and we'd be getting a handle on it, but we're not. And that kind of is disturbing. You know, I think the average American hears about the crisis all day long across the news channels, and it really does become, in our perception, a problem that somebody else needs to fix, right? The federal government needs to regulate us out of it. The physicians need to prescribe us out of it. The treatment programs need to counsel us out of it, when in reality, this is our problem, right? This is happening in our households with our kids. 
And so taking the approach of prevention is one of the biggest things that we can do as a community, and that's what this book is all about. It's written for patients and their family members to know exactly how to handle opioids if they come into the household, how to dispose of them, how to use them safely, all the reasons that we as prescribers might offer an opioid and alternatives to them. And then, of course, all the resources and tools necessary if you're struggling with addiction to get out of it and to get the treatment necessary. It's a book of hope. And, you know, similar, I would imagine the audience today hasn't touched a hot stove this morning, right? <laughs> There's a reason for that, because you learned at a very young age that if you touch a hot stove, you're going to experience consequences. Same thing for this book. Get the knowledge into the hands of every person before they ever encounter an opioid along their life journey so that they're prepared for it when it happens. You cite some personal experiences in the book with people have used it correctly and incorrectly as well. Could you talk about some of those? Yeah, you know, this book is not only filled with important information, but it's filled with messages of warning and messages of hope from people who've truly lived through the experiences. Addiction and opioid-related problems, chronic pain are so personal, and they affect every domain of life. We want people to know that others are struggling just like them and that there are stories of hope at the end of what can be a very dark tunnel. What are the positive aspects then that would have someone like in your position to say, it's a valid drug to use, it has to be managed well, but it has a lot of positive aspects to it too. Could you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, when used correctly in the right patient for the right indication and the right dose, um, this is one of the greatest treatment opportunities we have to help alleviate pain and improve functionality. And that's what we try and tell patients these days. You need to have a good understanding of why this drug class is used. For acute pain purposes, these are one of the greatest marvels of medicine to alleviate pain and improve functionality, not completely eliminate it, right? We have pain for a purpose, and that's to help us heal, to let us know what our limitations are. I would say to our audience that chronic pain is a different kettle of fish. It's a disease in itself, and we treat it very differently. The data does not support use of opioids in most situations of chronic pain, and this book helps equip you with the information to consider the alternatives that might be of greater benefit. So who would be the best benefit to use opioids in a particular situation? Not chronic, severe pain, but what is the window there that you think that patients would most benefit from opioids? Great question. Opioids have been shown to be a great uh, analgesic in the setting of someone with moderate to severe pain who's exhausted alternative agents at the same time. Uh, we don't advocate for anyone ever using an opioid on its own. You're always going to want to pair it with a non-opioid agent, right? So something like physical therapy or occupational therapy, Tai Chi and yoga have great data behind it. Daily exercise. In addition, you want to pair it with a pharmacologic agent that's not an opioid like scheduled Tylenol around the clock or as needed ibuprofen. And then if those in combination aren't giving the pain relief needed, then add the opioid on for breakthrough after that. Anything else before we go? I think we've hit on the, the big points and we hope people understand that this tool is pretty much the only book out on the market discussing the content in it. So we hope it's a tremendous resource to our community. And if we work together, we're going to solve this crisis. That's Dr. Holly Geyer, addiction medicine specialist with the Mayo Clinic. If you'd like to get a copy of her book, Ending the Crisis, all you need to do is Google Ending the Crisis. Now, there's a real gripping miniseries on Hulu called Dope Sick. It shows how Purdue Pharma put profits over people's lives 
and continued to do so after the evidence was clear, opioid addiction was killing people. Michael Keaton stars in the miniseries. He plays the part of a doctor who begins prescribing opioids to ease the pain of his patients and then becomes addicted himself. You just received some startling news. You're going to need brain surgery. But the doctor also says your prospects for total recovery are excellent. The doctor is very confident with his prognosis. He's performed hundreds of similar surgeries during his career. Who would you choose, this doctor or another doctor who's never performed this type of surgery? If the doctor who's performed similar surgeries is your choice, then experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Okay, here's our closing joke. I don't have a second one, which saved which saved me last week. No kidding. Because the first one landed like a brick, so I was well, glad I had it. The first one I didn't even think you were finished with. I was. Yeah. I didn't well, think there. Your ending did not feel like an ending to me. Yeah. Sometimes it's just the delivery, and I think I let you and and our our listener down. So. Yeah. I'm going to try to really bring it this time. Okay. okay. Here we go. A guy stuck his head into a barber shop and asked, how long before I can get a haircut? The barber looked around the shop full of customers and said, uh, about two hours. So the guy left. A few days later, same guy stuck his head in the door and said, how long before I can get a haircut? Hey, Pat. Yeah. You know what? When you started this, the joke off with a guy stuck his head in, I thought you were going to start it off with a guy stuck his head in a towel dispenser. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, oh, I went a whole. I went a whole different direction. Okay, so I, the guy stuck I like his head. I like the callback. That was really good. <laughs> I know. I thought you were gonna do that. Okay, so he stuck his head in. Yeah, and then the first time the the barber said eh, it's gonna be about be about two hours. So then a few days later, same guy stuck his head in the door and asked, "How long before I can get a haircut?" The barber looked around the shop and said. Uh, about three hours. So the guy left. A week later, the same guy, Lisa, stuck his head in the shop and asked, How long before I can get a haircut? The barber looked around the shop and said, uh, About an hour and a half. The guy left. The barber turned to a friend and said, Hey, uh, Bill, do me a favor. Would you follow that guy and see where he goes? Because he keeps asking how long he has to wait for a haircut, but then he never comes back. So a little while later, Bill did what the barber asked, and Bill came back to the shop, and he was laughing. And the barber said, so where does that guy go when he leaves? And looked up and said, your house. Ooh. <laughs> That's so good. I saw a 
bird who flew through the door. He mmped on the table and he mmped on the floor. He mmped on the coffee and he mmped on the tea. If I hadn't been a running, he'd have mmped on me. Won't you have a little <laughs> sniff on me, on me? Won't you have a little <laughs> on me? So there you go. Pat Cashman, huh? Tells great uh, jokes. <laughs> pretty good, huh? Yeah. Um, you know, I say that the things that he can come up with are pretty amazing and uh, really enjoy that segment. And if you want to hear this and much more of his podcast, all you need to do is Google Peculiar Podcast. And it's all yours. He has a really recent one out, which is quite good, too. So thanks again, Pat and Lisa. You guys have a great rest of the week. And so we'll continue with our show right now in just a moment. On this edition of Spotlight on Success, I'm speaking with Dr. Ken Frederick. He is a chiropractor in the Port Orchard area, and Dr. Frederick is someone that actually treats me on a regular basis. So I wanted to have him come on the show and talk about chiropractic care and who can benefit from the techniques chiropractors employ. So welcome, doctor. How are you? Thanks, Eric. I'm doing very well. Well, I appreciate all the things you've done for me, and I wanted the audience to kind of learn a little bit more about chiropractic care, particularly those who have never really uh, utilized it in their health program. So before we get into that, though, let's talk a little bit about you, how you got started in this field and your practice. Well, uh, originally, um, I was going to start investigating schools to become an MD. I'd seen a couple of things along the way while I'm waiting for responses that happened to friends of mine that happened to have seen chiropractors. And the one that sticks out in my mind was a female neighbor, a lady in her upper 20s, three children. I hadn't seen her for a few days, uh, asked family what was going on. She was hospitalized with severe vertigo and they were testing and testing and could not find a cause. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually they sent her home. Uh, she had to stay reclined the entire time. She couldn't eat standing up, sitting up. Uh, it was bad. They eventually just said, you know, you have this thing called Meniere's disease and there's nothing we can do. Have a nice day. Mm -hmm. And so I mentioned to them, you know, uh, I had a buddy who had sciatica. He went and saw this chiropractor in the next town down the road. You've tried everything else. Why don't you go see what he can do? I don't know what they do. I don't know anything about them. And as the story goes, because I did wind up speaking to that chiropractor a few months later, uh, they brought her in. He did an adjustment in her upper cervical spine. She sat up, turned her head left, turned her head right, and said, oh, my God, it's gone. And it never returned. So consequently, what that meant was that in her case, it was a nerve problem. It wasn't an inner ear problem. It wasn't a disease or a virus that she caught, it was a nerve problem and it was influenced, these nerves were influenced by bones in her neck. So I said to myself, wow, I wanna be one of those guys. And so off to chiropractic college I went. 
And our conversations about that college experience, it's amazing how much knowledge you have to have before you get that magical paper that says you're a doctor. That's true. Uh, they want us to know as much as any graduating medical student uh, before they be decide to intern or if they want to become general practice. Um, they teach us exactly the same curriculum as an MD. Uh, with minor changes, they have more hours in pharmacology, obviously, than a chiropractor does. We have more hours in neuroanatomy than an MD does. So it's because where we want to specialize. So everything that we've talked about in our sessions leads me to believe that chiropractic care can, can be a standalone, but also something in tandem with, say, your regular physician. Absolutely. Um, we are always looking for an alternative diagnosis. We want to make sure that it is something that is within our scope of practice that we can help with. Uh, if it becomes apparent, and we're trained to look for these things, if it becomes apparent that this person needs further help from some somebody that is more skilled in a particular um, area than we are, we mm -hmm. certainly go ahead and make that referral. So definitely uh, you'd refer to specialists depending on the situation. Absolutely. It, uh, you know, there are many. Um, the easiest one I can recall that happened to me in my practice was um, a patient lifted up a shirt and he said, Doc, look at this bulge. What's this here in my belly? And I looked at it and I went, well, I think that's uh, a hernia. You better go see your MD about that. So that's a very common one. Um, the most complex one I ever saw was uh, I was covering for a different chiropractor on this occasion. And I'd seen this, this patient come in for several treatments beforehand. And I asked this patient, are you getting better? And the patient said to me, you know, I think my tongue is working better. <laughs> and I asked him, stick your tongue out at me. And it deviated to the left. He was trying to point it straight at me, but it went sideways. And I know from my education, this poor fellow has a brain tumor. Oh, my God. And so that's, you know what? I can't help you. You go to your primary MD. You tell him that I told you to stick your tongue out at him and show him what happens. Next, I saw this guy in a hardware store, I don't know, a year later, and uh, he was going through chemo and radiation, and he thanked me. Um, Amazing. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, so there's there's several several things like that. So talk about your typical patient. Why do they first come to see you? My typical patient that first comes to see me is for a musculoskeletal complaint. Um, they are typically neck pain low back pain, sciatica, uh, numbness tingling in the hands. Um, and so what we do is we sit down with them, we put them through an exam, we're looking for uh, results on several orthopedic tests, we take some x-rays, and then we see if we can really fine tune and detect what is it a vertebral problem that is causing this. And if it is something that you think that you can make better or, or relieve for them, Talk about the process. What, what are they going to experience when they come to your office? Well, <clears throat> first thing they'll experience is the examination. Uh, it's, it's a complete neurological exam. Uh, we're testing all the nerves, hands, legs, everything. Uh, we will take the x-rays. Mm -hmm. And almost immediately, uh, I'll go over the x-rays 
with them and I'll show them what I'm looking for and what I think might be the cause of their pain. Um, the next thing we'll do is I'll introduce them to the different equipment that I have um, and how I'm going to adjust them and which tables they'll lay on. And then we'll come up with a game plan, a care plan, um, because it's, it's rare that I can fix somebody with one treatment. I mean, it, it, it's rare, it does mm -hmm. happen, but 99% of the time it's gonna involve a care plan that has several treatments. But in my office, I take it treatment by treatment and, and try to measure how fast they're getting better and, and adjust the plan accordingly. Yeah, I noticed in my case, it was uh, seeing you a little bit more often early on, and now it's basically once every three weeks, and I imagine it'll eventually go to once a month and in sort of a maintenance situation. That's true, and that's always the best way to go. Uh, in your case, we assume that, okay, this is, you know, based on my experience, this is how long this will take us, but if you get better faster than I thought you would, well, then we'll immediately start tapering the, the frequency of treatments and try to get you to a point where if you ever need me again, you know where I am, just give me a call. Yeah. You know, uh, in talking to people that uh, I know that have been to chiropractors, one of the things they say is, I can't believe how quick it is. I go in there, it's two, three minutes and I'm out. Uh, you're different and you're the first chiropractor that I've ever gone to. It's generally a 10 to 15 minute session minimum. And that's after, of course, the initial, which is much more detailed. That's true. The first visit is usually an hour that, that covers the uh, the exam and the x-rays, but typically the treatment times that I, I set up are 15 minutes long. Uh, many chiropractors are comfortable with five minute treatments, um, but in, you know, that's how you can try and find a chiropractor that works best for you is if you don't know anybody, you can call around. They're all on the internet. You can all find chiropractors close to you. You call them and you say, hey, how long are my treatment times in this office? And they'll tell you it's five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And I would recommend that you see a chiropractor that has a longer appointment time so that you can actually talk and discuss how things are going so that he might need to change the way he treats you. In the three minutes we have left here, let's kind of back up a little bit. Are there any myths that you've discovered as you talk to new patients about chiropractic care, what they thought it was going to be like or what they assumed you could do? Well, you know, really the only myth th that jumps out to my mind is, is that A, chiropractors, once you go, want you to come forever, which isn't true. I mean, I would always recommend that somebody, you know, get a tune-up now and then. But the other myth is that it's dangerous. And, you know, it's, it's, it's completely safe. The only time there might be some risk is if there's something particularly nasty that we see on an x-ray that says, you know, you probably don't want to touch this area. So I would always ask question number two, if I were calling around, does this office take x-rays? That's a great, great question to ask. Um, you've been at this now how many years? 22 years. And so it's something, uh, actually, I saw you earlier today and you had said, you know what? I've been doing this for a long time and I was still excited to go to work today. So it is something you love. It is. It's. I, I can't imagine doing anything else. This one, this this journey was really a vision that I saw that was bigger than myself. And at the end of the day, uh, I just wanted to go home knowing that I helped at least one person get better. 
I'd like to recommend people check out your website, even if they're not in the Port Orchard area. It's a great website, by the way. Um, and there's lots of information, much more than we can cover in just this 12 minute interview here. Uh, if I have it right, it's P O P is in Paul O Cairo C H I R O help.com P O Cairo help.com. Correct. And uh, a lot of great uh, links and things to check out and videos there that will visualize for you what we've been talking about here today. Well, doctor, thank you so much for what you've done for me. Really appreciate it. And for this well. information today. Fantastic. It's been enjoyable. We'll have you back on because as I look at our list of questions, we barely scratched the surface. Well, keep up the good work, doctor, and we'll be seeing you soon. Thanks very much, Eric. Welcome back to Voices of Experience, Eric. That was a great interview. Oh, thank and I you. I really mean that. I've been going to a chiropractor for a pretty long time, over 20 years. I learned some things there. That was um, very interesting. Oh, thank you so much. And, and I do want to point out that uh, in situations like this, I'm not getting free chiropractic care. I'm paying my way. I just thought it was an interesting subject, and I thought maybe someone else would uh, think the same. Uh, I, I like what he said about how it's just sort of an integrated it's integrated into your, your your overall you know medical uh, routine. So obviously you're going to see your general practice MD. Obviously if it's surgery, it's a surgeon and things like this. Nutritionist. I just like where we're going in this country and and uh, with our medical in terms of uh, opening it up to other ways of taking care of problems and maybe being able to avoid things like surgery or. Uh, or just sort of remember, remember the old days. You just grin and bear it, you know. Just just suck it up, and you know that back back pain back pain is just a sign of old age. Just just you know, don't worry about it. Just just toughen up and deal with it. You don't have to do that necessarily. And if chiropractic cares in your future, maybe check it out. Yeah, I totally agree. And actually, I went to my first chiropractor as a result of a car accident. Mm. Um, it wasn't that serious, but. I'll just be candid. My lawyer said, go to a chiropractor and do all these things, which I did. But after I got through that process, I found out how much better I felt after I visited a chiropractor. Mm. I go once every two weeks or once a month at the um, minimum. And uh, I've just found over the years, there's like, when I do different things, you go to a doctor or where you do certain things, you don't feel like this instant kind of... Um, uh, reward. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. When I go to a chiropractor, my shoulders are always further back. When I walk out, I'm walking straighter up, you know, straight yep. up and down and my head, it just feels it's my brain's clearer. <laughs> <laughs> I you know, know exactly I mean, it just has about. that effect because it, they do, you know, uh, manipulations with your neck and, um, you just really feel a lot younger and a lot bigger, not bigger step, but just faster step that you take this overall and I, my visits pretty quick he's gone through a lot of things with me in the past but he knows what i need to do and sometimes i will come in and say this is bothering me here yeah. but i just get in pretty much when things aren't bothering me and it's more of a maintenance program and i'm very happy with it sounds like it's very much what what i have going on i'm, I'm in there about every other week maybe every three weeks and it's just like you say it's a really cool little tune-up and i feel great uh and, and i don't have it in between time, I, I it, it just so happens that I went a month without going, and I thought to myself, that's great. It's only now just my back's kind of getting a feeling a little tinge here, and so it was great to just go in and get kind of a tune-up, if you will. 
Um, but yeah, just yeah. quickly that story about the individual who came in with his tongue like that, and he was able to diagnose or at least make some mm -hmm. educated guess, which he is, and uh, was able to find the right resource for him. And hopefully the guy's alive today because of that. Well, exactly. And beyond that, I just love meeting people. I don't care what the job is, but you know, you, you talk to certain people and you can just tell they love what they do. They always have. They, they, they're not one of these people that are, what am I going to, what am I going to do in the, for my next career? No, they just love what they do now and for, and they're probably going to be doing it forever. So I kind of like that. You got it. Good. So uh, do you want to go to Voices of History? Yeah, I want to learn something. On that. I got some good ones today, I think. Uh, we start with March 8th, 2023. Um, and that is a German company. And this was uh, in 1889. Patents its product, Bayer Aspirin. <laughs> it remains the most common drug in household medicine cabinets throughout the world. 1899. Wow. Now, I would have thought bare aspirin was the 1930s. I don't know why I felt that. And the other thing that surprised me, it was a German company who invented bare aspirin. I guess my arrogance got the best of me, and I thought it was an American company. How about you? Yeah, yeah, same here. Um, not only that, though, it, I, that has to be one of the longest-running brand names, I would think. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Hmm. Bare aspirin. On March 6th, 1981, CBS Evening News anchor Walter Cronkite signs off for the last time with his trademark signature close to the broadcast. And that's the way it is, John. And then his last time, he said, for the final time. I did it. No, it's pretty bad. That's but, pretty good, you know. actually. No, I was going to say that. Yeah, that was good. Okay. Yeah. So Walter's, you know. And I think now with him, no longer with us, but with him, you know. a whole era of quality news went, went with him, you know? Yeah. It makes us very nostalgic yes. for that era, that time, because, you know, Eric, to your point is that, um, not only was he the nation's leading newsman, but he was also the most trusted man in America. Mm -hmm. Not a bad run. No. Um, on March 7th, 1965, in Selma, Alabama, a 600-person civil rights demonstration ends in violence when marchers are attacked and beaten by white state troopers and sheriff deputies. The day's events have become known as Bloody Sunday. And as a matter of fact, I think President Biden was there on the Pettus Bridge last week marking this anniversary. Yes, I did see him there, and um, I think that's become... A yearly thing for presence. I'm I'm so glad they do that. I think it's a, it's a great chance to spotlight that and, and the incredible story behind that day, behind Bloody Sunday, and uh, no doubt for sure. And then what? The following week, it came back and they were able to cross the bridge. So it's a great story. I haven't seen the movie Selma, but I'm got that on my list. I got to see that movie. I'm surprised I haven't. So I got to take a look at that. At the top of the program, I talked about a date that happened in history. And, um, and talked about uh, the fight of the century. Well, that occurred on March 8th. That would have been today, 1971, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier met at Madison Square Garden wow. in New York City. Ali had been barred from fighting for three and a half years after the boxing commissioner revoked his license after he refused to go fight in Vietnam. Wow. So the boxing commissioner took his place. He said, I'll go to Vietnam instead. That's a lie. 
<laughs> that is not voices in history, but I bring that up because it's easy for a boxing commissioner, I guess, to say, you go, I'll stay here, but rah, rah, go fight. I got that one wrong. Me. I totally thought you were going to say it was the Thrilla and Manila. Remember that um, fight? Yes. You know, when I was reading it too, I thought that's what it would have been. I think been. that was later. I think that was 74 though. Yeah. 1974, a few years later, but he did the same. Well, he lost that one, but he did come back, but that was pretty remarkable too. I think that was probably the most remarkable fight among the many that he had that thriller in Manila. Yeah. You know, those are, those fights were some of the times that, you know, as a, sometimes it's hard to relate to your dad as, as a, as a dad's son. And that was one of the times I just remember watching fights with him with, with uh, a little bit later though, in the seventies with Muhammad Ali and we'd both be there just riveted. I mean, he was such an amazing athlete. Yeah. And just a, Tremendous man, too, an individual. I can't, yeah. I, I got to say, when I was growing up, uh, even I really, as a fighter, great. But as a human being, and what he did mm -hmm. uh, to me actually exceeds his fighting um, prowess or how good he was. He was an amazing American and a great human being. I really uh, felt that. Very much agree. On March 19th, 1959, the first Barbie doll goes on display at the American toy fair in new york city she was 11 inches tall and had long blonde hair barbie was the first mass-produced toy doll in the united states with adult features hmm. did not know that mm -mm. did not even know about was when it came out but nonetheless that's interesting they're all kind of maybe dolls and things but this was the first with it was actually adult features as it just said what and what a home run for would that be mattel yeah, I think you're right. Probably was. I mean, Mattel. what a home run! I mean, that's like the Ford Mustang. You know, whoever came up with that idea, let's let's do this Barbie doll because they're still producing them. I think. Oh yeah, yeah. I think there's probably d many different nationalities mm -hmm. and very different, uh, you know, individuals with the Barbie doll. But yes, I'm pretty sure it's still. It is certainly it's still being produced. Amazing. Um, let's see. On March 9th. 1979, 26 baseball teams are ordered by the Major League Baseball Commissioner, Booby Coon, to allow equal access to all reporters, regardless of sex. The commissioner's order comes after Sports Illustrated reporter Melissa Latke's successful lawsuit against Major League Baseball for refusing access to women. Hmm. 1979. 1979. Wow. It's, wouldn't it seem like it would be longer ago? I mean, that's, wow. You I mean, mean before I, 1979? Yeah, yeah. It took that long. Yes and no, because really, you know, Title IX, the women's program that allowed collegiate programs or required collegiate programs now to provide equal access for women in college sports, was in the early 1970s. It was actually... Uh, came into an existence when I was at Washington State University. Title IX, as a matter of fact, some graduate from Washington State had a impact on that, but that's another story. There you go. So I guess in recognition that it was just starting where women were going to be in collegiate athletics at that time, I guess it isn't that surprising to me that only like five or six years later, they said, okay, you also have to provide equal access to the players. So Gotcha. Let's go with another one on March 6th, 1996. The legendary chomping performer, or cigar chomping performer, George Byrne, 
George Burns dies at his home in Beverly Hills just weeks after celebrating his 100th birthday. It's a shame that Betty White didn't make that mm -hmm. uh, centennial mark. Mm -hmm. She was just a few weeks short. And uh, anyhow, that's uh, interesting there. I did not know that he had been gone that long. Yeah. So those are the national uh, voices in history and some local ones from historylink.org. On March 4th, 1902, Seattle voters flipped a historic switch by approving bonds for a tiny hydroelectric plant at Cedar Falls. This first juice for the streetlights flowed three years later in Seattle. And on March 2nd, 1899, Congress created Mount Rainier National Park. Oh, wow. Beautiful place, too, of course. Yeah, 1899. I would have thought that was the 1930s or something. Yeah, exactly. Know. It was that uh, long ago. <laughs> so, again, these are uh, courtesy of History Channel and uh, This Day in History. Again, as I always say, if you enjoy any of these segments, go to that. They have every single day so many more historical markers than I can get to. But uh, that's um, just need to Google This Day in History. And, of course, the local uh, historical events, go to historylink.org. Now, speaking there of, you have it. I love your history uh, segments. I, I just love it. I love this type of thing. And we were having a conversation during one of the breaks. You had a, a, uh, a date with history recently in Vegas where you went to a, an amazing exhibition. Yep. Very true. You Titanic. It was Titanic. absolutely fabulous. Luxor Hotel, it really was um, remarkable in the sense that real pieces of the Titanic was there. It's a great history of what happened. You think you've heard it all the time, but you really haven't. Certain things come to mind. Um, you know, second class and first class were pretty close. By the way, if you had a first class ticket on that, it would have cost today dollars, about $150,000. Wow. Oh, man. Yeah. So, Eric, I think that would have <laughs> a little out of my stretched you a little bit. Right? They got a group on for that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they didn't know that. And then second class, which was not that bad from first, was maybe 85000 I mean, when I say not Gosh. that bad, it means they passengers had pretty much all the access that first class had, but not as much. Let's put it that way. Okay. And then third class, it really wasn't that bad because the creators of the Titanic, the builders um, and the people operating the Titanic knew that they needed to have third class to really be the workhorse for paying for the Titanic. So they made right. the um, place. It's still third class. It's down below. We saw in the movie that they were locked in when the uh, Titanic was sinking, but actually they're uh, able to stay in their quarters that they had were a major step up from anything mm. third class had before coming over to America. You'd just be in a blanket and say, sit there and we'll get there. We'll see you when we get, we arrive sort of thing. Wow. But, uh, anyhow, I highly recommend it. That's great. I'll check it out next time. I'm down so um, let's go uh, with the next segment coming up. I want to talk about judgment and going into business for yourself. And um, it's something I wrote about, oh, let's say 10 years ago. If you're considering self-employment, if you're considering becoming an entrepreneur, I believe that this is the most important trait that you need to have. If you're asking yourself, is this a step for me? So, Eric, could you uh, play that? 
I developed what I call the self-employment quiz, and there are 20 questions on the quiz, and the higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One of those questions is about good judgment. Nothing has disappeared from the American landscape during my lifetime faster than good judgment. If you exercise good judgment more often than bad, you have a very good chance of succeeding in business. Unfortunately, like experience, good judgment can't be taught. Have you exercised good judgment when you have been in charge of your life? Do you demonstrate good judgment in choosing your friends or your associates? How about in the jobs you've taken or the lifestyle choices you've made? How many times have your business or personal relationships ended up in mistrust or contempt for the other person or organization? We all have baggage, but do you have a history of making bad judgment calls or repeating the same mistakes? On the other hand, if you feel that, by and large, you have been happy with your choices in life, and if you are a person who generally exercises good judgment, there is a very good chance that you will succeed in business. Bottom line, you can read all the books, including mine, about self-employment and visit all the websites about succeeding in business. But your success or failure will always circle back to whether or not you can exercise good judgment when you need it. And I tell you, this hour goes really fast. I mean, it just it seems like you we just sat down. Yeah. And here we are getting towards the end to button this show up. Um, again, great interview that you had earlier and enjoyed a lot of the guests we've had today. And uh, next week, we got some really good ones coming up as well. But again, I want to thank uh, Eric Crema and also Eric Ryder and Benny Mathers for what you do every week and pulling this all together. I do want to emphasize that if you if you have any comments about what you hear, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Maybe you have a historical event that you like to add into our conversation. That would be kind of fun. You know, someone will call in about your family history or something like that, your grandfather, hmm. anybody who in this area, because I like to have more local type of uh, historical um, events that have occurred. And on a personal level, that would be fun. So um, again, that number is 425-653-1166. Again, Voices of Experience, we talk about public affairs, travel, fitness like we did today, health as we did today, education, history as we did today, current events, and entrepreneurship as we did today. I know that gets old, but I want to say we are trying to do what we set out to do each week. Now, Voices of Experience airs at 3 p.m., as you probably know if you're listening now. And it's a simulcast with Hubbard's sister radio station, KKNW, 1150 AM. And then Voices of Experience is rebroadcast on Kixie only on Sundays at 11 AM. Now, next week, I uh, have an interesting interview. I've completed it. It's pretty eye-opening. The book is called Hate, and it's by Matthew Williams, How Prejudice Becomes Hate and What We Can Do to Stop It. We're living in those times now. He gave some very constructive ideas as to how we can go forward in that. That sounds great. So that'll be coming up um, next week. And uh, it's just a really interesting take. And he did it because of a personal incident that happened to him. He was actually the victim of getting beat up for who he was. And then he's changed his life because of it and came out with this research. Hmm. Quote of the week. Your time is limited, so don't waste your time living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma. 
which is living with the results of other people's ideas and thinking. Steve Jobs. This week's Timeless Classic coming up next. When this group formed in 1965, they named themselves the Versatiles, but changed their name in 1967. While active, this group charted 20 top hits on Billboard's Top 100. Ten of their songs went to number one. The group's five original members, Lamont McLemore, Florence LaRue, Ronald Townsend, Billy Davis Jr., and Marilyn McCoo, who is still very active in the music industry today, at 79 years old. This week's Timeless Classic from 1971, If I Could Reach You, with Marilyn McCoo and The Fifth Dimension. Never said a word 